Well, from time to time, an event occurs that is so significant that everyone around it bears witness. It's burned into their memories, and they'll tell its story for years to come. But they'll all tell the story a little bit differently based on their different perspectives. We all observe things with a different time or different place in mind. So this leads to different versions of the same event. Take, for example, September 11th, which was an inescapable event for every New Yorker. That one event was witnessed by millions of people, but they'd each tell you a slightly different version of it based on their perspective. For example, most of us are familiar with the story as told by the news reporters, who reported from high above in the helicopters. From them, we get the, the bird's eye view of the planes crashing, the towers falling. Only from that perspective do you see the enormity of the event as the ensuing debris cloud enveloped lower Manhattan. You get a different perspective from those closer to the ground. One unique video came from two female college students eight blocks east of Ground Zero. They were filming from the 32nd floor of their apartment building. And they started filming after the first plane crashed, but they didn't know it was a plane. So they're just you can hear their commentary, their confusion of was this a bomb and what's going on. Also, from their perspective, they can't see the second plane coming. So when it hits, they're caught totally by surprise and they start yelling and screaming and hysteria. They flee their own skyscraper. And from them, you get a perspective of just sheer panic. Of course, you get a totally different take from those on the ground. Many people poured out into the streets to observe the event from street level. And these people witnessed the sights and the sounds of 9-11 like no other, the sirens, the chaos. Their story changes, though, when that first tower collapsed and that sent that inescapable cloud of dust and debris and smoke and ash. And these people were covered from head to toe in this white, gray ash. Only from their perspective can you find out what 9-11 smelled like and what 9-11 tasted like. The helicopter crew can't tell you that. So you see, different versions, different perspectives lead to different versions of the same event. This is not to say that different versions are contradictory. They're just different. They capture different parts from different times. For example, those two college girls, they fled before the towers collapsed. That doesn't mean the towers didn't fall. It just means they weren't around when that happened. We learn from other witnesses that that did, in fact, happen. Different perspectives are good, though, because no one person can capture the event in all of its different facets. Rather, when you add together different witnesses from different times and places and angles, you put it all together, that's when you get the true, complete picture. Now, the reason I'm telling you all this is because this is precisely what we have going on in the scriptures when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Resurrection was an absolutely stunning event. I mean, talk about noteworthy. And that one event was witnessed by many different people in many different places and at many different times. And each tell their own unique perspective on that event in scripture, specifically the four gospels. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all writing, giving their unique perspective on the event of the resurrection. Matthew and John write mostly as first-hand personal eyewitnesses. Mark writes based off of Peter's eyewitness, and Luke compiles many eyewitnesses together in his account. Apart, they capture the, the same event from slightly different angles. It doesn't make them contradictory, they're just different. But they blend together seamlessly, and by putting them together, you get this bigger, fuller picture of what happened that Sunday morning. The testimony of these witnesses is clear. 
that Jesus rose from the dead. And this is an event captured with unparalleled detail, accuracy, and veracity in the ancient world. And it is to this account that we turn this morning. So would you take your Bibles and open them to the last chapter of Mark, Mark chapter 16. This is the final chapter in Mark's gospel. This is the end where he gives his unique perspective on Christ's resurrection. This little chapter forms the conclusion to his gospel. His gospel is all about what? Mark chapter 1 verse 1. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's writing to share good news, centers on the identity of Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God, which he's been displaying throughout. Also, the good news is related to the work of Jesus, chiefly on the cross, as we just witnessed, where he gave his life as a ransom for many. However, even considering his identity and his work, there's still no good news without the resurrection. The good news is incomplete. If death gets the last word over Jesus, he can't be the Christ and the Son of God. The Jews always found it scandalous to think of a dead Messiah, and they were in part right. The only way to rectify a dead Messiah is with a resurrected Messiah, though. And further, if death wins over him, then his offer of new everlasting life on the cross is is meaningless. If Jesus remains dead, then what can he really do for those who are likewise held under the power of death? For these reasons and many more, the resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of the Christian faith. It is for this reason that Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15:17 that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. In other words, the entire Christian faith becomes worthless if Jesus did not rise from the dead. If that's the if that's the case, just go back to being a Jew or join the atheist because it's all for nothing. But Jesus did rise, and it's our joy to behold the account of that resurrection this morning. Like I said earlier, each of the four Gospels gives a unique but truthful account of the resurrection. You put them together, they all fit in harmony, they give that bigger picture of the event. But we are studying Mark's Gospel, so we are primarily concerned with Mark's account of the resurrection. We want to see what Mark has to say about that event. Now that being said, we can't help ourselves from time to time throwing in something from Matthew or Luke or John to give you just a a rounded out picture of what happened. And that's what we want to do this morning. And to be sure, we'll be in this this text, this chapter, for several weeks. For the past 200 years, an anti-supernatural bias has pervaded the Western world, where many people, past couple hundred years, say, this is not even possible. Did this really even happen? People don't rise from the dead. None of us were eyewitnesses, but the eyewitness testimony in Scripture is plentiful, precise, and profound. This is something worth addressing and defending, so next week we'll return and we'll study the reality of the resurrection. But then we have to delve into the theological and practical implications of the resurrection. I mean, is this really that important? And if so, how and why? What are the theological implications of the resurrection? What does it mean for our lives, basically, in the Christian faith? I mean, obviously, if you read the New Testament, you know it's important. But still, can you really put your finger on why it's so important? why it's the linchpin to the faith. We'll come back in two weeks and we'll answer that question. 
But since we can't fit everything into one sermon, today our, our goal is simply to behold the account of the resurrection. Let's just see what was written, what happened. This will serve as our foundation primarily in Mark. We're going to go through Mark 16, verses 1 through 8, verse by verse, as we typically do. And for this, we want to gather just what took place that first Sunday morning after that last Passover. Already we'll be able to gather some of what the resurrection means for our lives and for the faith today. So that's our simple goal this morning, Mark 16, 1 through 8. And thankfully, this verse breaks down nicely into two parts. And so we'll begin with number one, what the women saw. Number one, we'll start with this, verses 1 through 5, what the women saw. And look at Mark 16, we'll start in verse 1. It says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. We have seen these three women before. Mark mentioned them back at the end of chapter 15. And if you want the long version of who they were and their background, you have to download last week's sermon for that. But in general, these were some of Christ's female disciples. Everyone knows the 12 disciples, all of whom were male. But Jesus had many more followers who at times followed him around, and that included these women. Like chapter 15, verse 41 says of them, when Jesus was in Galilee, they, these women, used to follow him around and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. These women are noted for their faithfulness to Jesus and sticking by his side, even unto death, whereas the other 11 disciples at this point had all fled and gone into hiding. But these three women and, and a few others who are not named, they watched Jesus die. They stuck by the cross till the end. They also watched him be buried, although they themselves were helpless to rescue Jesus or to bury him themselves. But thankfully, as we learned last week, this is where Joseph of Arimathea comes into play. The Romans would have disposed of the body of Jesus in a, in a common grave. But along with the other two criminals. But Joseph, he put his career and his life on the line to request the body of Jesus from Pilate. Being joined by Nicodemus, these two men then took down the body of Jesus and quickly washed it, wrapped him in a linen cloth with some spices for a quick burial. In God's providence, Joseph's own unused tomb was very close to where Jesus had been crucified, so they placed his body there and they sealed the tomb. Now, speaking of that tomb, what was that tomb like, Joseph's own tomb? There are two tombs in Jerusalem today that people think may have been Christ's tomb. We don't really know for sure. But either way, they were pretty typical for the time. This picture of a tomb is basically a, a hollowed-out cave in, in a rock front, carved out of stone. Benches or shelves were carved out on the inside, upon which they would place the bodies for to, to, until they decomposed. Some of the benches would have slots under where ossuaries were placed. That's little compartments where they would store the bones of the, of the lost ones. The entrance to the tomb would then be sealed with a stone. We'll talk about that, though, later. And although you've got Joseph and Nicodemus, they're working against the clock, they have to get the body of Jesus in the tomb before sundown. They made haste. They did so, but the body of Jesus was not adequately prepared. The women were looking on, Mary and the two Marys were looking on while this was taking place. And so they resolved, while he was being buried, to come back after the Sabbath 
and basically finish the job, to finish anointing and preparing the body of Jesus for his forever burial, they thought. Luke 23, 55, 56 says this. It says, Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So as Joseph and Nicodemus laid Jesus to rest, the women were watching. Then before Sabbath ended, they procured their own spices and oils so as to return after the Sabbath to finish the job. And that had to be the most frustrating Sabbath for them ever. They couldn't do any work on the Sabbath. That included anointing the dead. So they were just left to sit around all Saturday in in frustration and anxiety, wishing they could just get to the body of Jesus and show him one last act of devotion and love. It's really interesting, though, to note the role these women play in the Passion account. In most of the Gospels, the role of these women disciples, they're, they're not really mentioned. They're there behind the scenes, but they don't really come out too much. But that changes when it comes to the passion that the final week of Christ's life. In Mark's passion account, these women disciples are featured at the very beginning and the very end, showing Christ supreme acts of devotion. Right before the triumphal entry, Jesus stopped by the town of Bethany outside of Jerusalem. And it's there that a different Mary, Mary the sister of Lazarus and Martha, She came, and if you remember, she anointed the head and the feet of Jesus with this very costly perfume. It's an act of love, act of devotion. That, of course, made the other disciples, chiefly Judas Iscariot, indignant with her because they thought she just wasted this expensive bottle of perfume. It was worth one year's wages. And he thought he just wasted it for, for nothing, could have been sold. But Jesus praised her for, without knowing it, she had anointed his body beforehand for burial, he said. And that would be the only burial anointing Jesus would receive from these women, although they didn't know it at the time. And so again, like verse 1 says, when the Sabbath was over. So now we're, we're after that point. The Sabbath is now over. And verse 1 says, the two Marys, Mary Magdalene, Mary mother of James, and Salome, they bought spices and uh, so that they might come and anoint him, it says. Verse 1, Sabbath is over. Sunday marked the beginning of a new week. It's a really fitting picture for the new dawn of humanity, in a sense. You can picture Jesus like resting on the Sabbath. His work of salvation is complete. So like God did with creation, in a way, he's like resting on the Sabbath. And as the sun rises, so the Son of God rises, and with him the dawn of a new age. These three women have assembled again, spices in hand to finish the job of anointing and preparing his body for burial. And they're very eager to do so. Their eagerness is made evident by how early they set out. Look at verse 2. It says, very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. All four of the Gospels stress just how early these these women came to the tomb. They set out first thing. The clock was ticking on Christ's decaying body. They wanted to get there as soon as possible. So actually we learned they left their homes while it was still a bit dark before the sun came up. And by the time they get to the tomb, the sun had just risen. This makes sense. They're probably coming from Bethany still, which was about two miles away. 
But their departure at such an early hour, it's really just a reflection of their hearts, their, their devotion, their love for the Lord. They want to get to him and, and, and do this, this final act of devotion as soon as possible. They need some daylight for their task, so they leave as early as they can to ensure the sun will just be up when they get to the tomb. Now, it's at this point that Mary Magdalene shows perhaps the greatest eagerness because John's gospel gives the impression that she alone ran ahead of the other women and she got to the tomb first by herself. Maybe this was out of an even greater devotion for the Lord or maybe she wanted to get ahead and perhaps recruit some help for them to move the stone away from the tomb. That's possible seeing that this became the overwhelming concern of the women on the way. Look at verse 3. It says, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? This verse shows of the women their single-mindedness, which isn't a bad thing. It's just they were so determined to get to the body of Jesus and do this final act of devotion that they never really thought ahead to think, wait, we should probably invite some men along to move the stone away from the tomb. Because for them, it would be quite the obstacle there was no way they were going to be able to move this heavy, massive stone on their own. Earlier, I described what the tomb of Jesus was like on the inside. On the outside, though, of this artificial cave, there would have been a little opening. And in front of the opening, on the ground, there would have been a groove cut out along the face of the stone, like a track. And in the track would have been this massive circular stone which would then be rolled in front of the entrance, effectively sealing the tomb. A little stone wall was built in front of the the rolling stone to keep it from falling over. But the circular stone that was moved, it it would have been very heavy, to put it lightly. They were typically about four to six feet in diameter, one foot thick, altogether weighing at least one to two tons. Only by its cylindrical design and with the help of gravity were Joseph and Nicodemus able to roll it into place, which they did, Mark tells us. But rolling the stone out of place, up a slight incline against gravity would have been a very difficult task. It would have required at least a couple of burly men, much more than these women were able to muster at the time. So you can understand their consternation. They realize they're in a bit of a bind because rolling the stone, it's just, it's not in their league. They just can't do it. It's not an option. And so there's some desperation in their voices when they say, verse 3, who's going to roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? They, they didn't think about that. They're already left. They're on the way. They didn't plan ahead for that. And so now they're, they're probably discouraged because their efforts to, to anoint Jesus to finish this burial are going to be further delayed. Who knows? how much longer it's going to take to find someone to roll the stone away. But their fears were unnecessary because, as you all know, the stone was already moved. Verse 4, it says, Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. You can picture their surprise now when they came to the tomb. I think the picture here is that they were worrying, discussing this this issue, the problem of the stone, all the way while they were walking to the tomb. This discussion consumed them so much that as they drew near, they were too busy talking to one another, and they didn't actually see that the stone had, had already been moved away. 
When they finally looked up, though, the stone was gone and they were astonished. Again, like verse 4 says, the stone was extremely large. So it's not like the wind moved it. It's like how if you came home at night, you park in your, in your front yard or you park in your driveway, but in the morning, your car, it's across the street. Well, you know someone has moved your car. Something has happened. And if you live alone, you know someone has tampered with your car. Someone has done something to your car. And likewise, they could immediately tell something had happened. Someone had been here. Someone had moved the stone. And that probably meant someone had tampered with the body of Jesus. Like I said earlier, Mary Magdalene actually arrived at the tomb first before the other women. And she likewise saw the stone had already been rolled away. This shocked her so much that according to John chapter 20, she ran away. She fled in confusion and fear and she ran and told Peter and John. She told the two chief disciples when she found them. She said to them, John 20 verse 2, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. She saw the stone had been moved. The tomb was empty. So she panicked. She fled. She told Peter and John. At this point, you might recall John's account, his perspective. Remember, he was there. And John tells us that after hearing from Mary, Peter and John both run to the tomb. They've got a foot race to the tomb. They stop inside. They look inside. They find nothing. It's empty. All they see are are the linen cloth wrappings of Jesus left behind, perfectly in place, and nothing else. It's at that point, though, John tells us that when they saw the empty tomb, the linen wrappings, they started to believe that Jesus had risen. But now we come back to the other women. Our focus is on these these other women who are still, they're still on the way to the tomb. Mary Magdalene, she's already been there. She's en route to Peter and John. These other women then show up. The tomb is opened to their surprise. The stone has been moved. They too, they approach, they look inside. And this time, the tomb is not empty. It is not empty. There's someone inside. Verse 5. It says, Entering a tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe. And they were amazed. Mark doesn't tell us how the stone was moved. It's not particularly important to him. He simply states the fact that the stone was moved. He also tells us why it was moved. Do you know why the stone was rolled away from the tomb? You ever think about that? Why was the stone moved away? It was not to let Jesus out. It was to let the women in so that they could see it's empty, that there's nobody home. You might wonder though, okay, but how was the stone moved? Who did it? And here you might recall Matthew's account. He tells us, Matthew 28, verses 2 through 4. It says, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Mention of the guards here. You might also recall how Matthew records the Jews, the religious leaders, they knew that Jesus said he would rise in the third day. So they requested a guard from Pilate to secure the tomb, put the Roman seal on it. Obviously, these women had never heard about the Roman guard. They were resting on Sabbath. They didn't see this. They did not expect a Roman guard to be at the tomb when they showed up. 
Otherwise, they could have just asked a couple of soldiers to roll away the, the stone. But when the women arrive at the tomb, the soldiers, they're gone. Where did they go? That they ran away. Why did they run away? Because they were afraid. Matthew tells us there was this strong but local earthquake around the tomb. The earthquake did not roll away the stone. Rather, likely the earthquake signified the moment of the resurrection. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, Jesus rose to glorified life. And just like that, he was gone. He was out of the tomb. He was in the heavenly realm, you could say. He was not there, at least. The angel then rolled away the stone, surely with ease, and sat upon it to show that Jesus was gone. It's empty. There's nobody home. When the soldiers saw this, though, understandably, they became like dead men. They were petrified. And then they ran away. They all fled, ran for the hills. At that point, the angel likewise left, or perhaps simply made himself invisible. Scripture actually teaches that angels, these heavenly beings, have the ability to make themselves visible to humans or not. Either way, when Mary Magdalene shows up, the soldiers are gone, the angel is gone, she sees nothing but the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene will be visited by this angel the second time she comes back to the tomb after Peter and John. But for now, though, she leaves. These other women show up. They look inside the tomb. It's not empty. The angel has reappeared. He's been waiting for them. Mark says his appearance was like a young man dressed in a white robe. And in case you find that description a little unimpressive, don't forget what Matthew said. His appearance was like lightning in his garment, as white as snow. It's not just a white robe. It was a luminous, dazzling white robe, Luke tells us. In a world without bleach or washing machines, I imagine white robes don't stay white for very long. Probably after the first day, your white robe becomes a gray robe, but not with this angel. And in case you're wondering, like we saw in Matthew, Luke says the same thing, confirms this young man was in fact an angel. The appearance of this person amazed the woman, verse 5 says. They saw the young man and they were amazed. Ekthambeo, it means they were alarmed, astonished, astounded. It's like imagine walking out of church this afternoon, you look on the horizon, you see the unmistakable mushroom cloud of a nuclear bomb. You would be amazed. Not in the sense like you just saw a cool magic trick, but in the sense of being terrified. And no wonder Luke says that when the women saw the angel, they, they bowed their face to the ground. They were, they were scared to death. And that is the standard human response to seeing an angel. Fear. Always in scripture. Fear, like you're going to die, fear. Fear like you jump out of an airplane and you realize you forgot the parachute, fear. Even these, you know, macho, stout Roman soldiers were cowering like little girls when they saw the angel. Daniel knew that fear. Later on in Revelation, the Apostle John will know that fear. He falls like a dead man before a heavenly being. As a quick side note, this is another way you can tell that those people who claim they've gone to heaven and seen angels are all lying because their stories never include them being deathly afraid. But in scripture, the standard response of a human to an angel is always fear. And that's why the standard response of an angel to a human is always what? Do not be afraid. 
That's always the first thing they say. Do not be afraid. Why would they say that? Because their appearance sparks great fear. And Matthew says that the angel said to them, do not be afraid. He's not there to kill them. He's not there to judge them. He's there to deliver a message. As with the birth of Jesus, an angel, and this could be, again, Gabriel, we don't know for sure, but an angel has come to deliver tidings of great joy. This was a divine appointment. The Greek word for angel, after all, means messenger. This divine messenger had a message for these women. These women were faithful to Jesus in death, and so they would be rewarded with being the first to receive news of his life, his new life, his resurrection. And this brings us now to number two, what the angel said. I said this passage splits nicely into two parts. It does, number one, what the women saw. And number two, simple enough, what the angel said. Verses six through eight. Now, really quick, I should mention there actually were two angels present, according to Luke, but only one of them spoke, so Matthew and Mark only record the speaker. It's not a contradiction because it's not like Matthew and Mark say there were one and only one angel. In fact, it's actually very typical for Matthew and Mark to only record the speaker for narrative reasons. That's just what they do. They only pay attention to the speaker. It's like with the Gerasene demoniac, Matthew and Mark only record the speaker but there's actually two guys there. Or when Jesus healed the two blind men, Matthew and Mark only record Bartimaeus because he was the speaker. They only give attention to the speaker. Anyway, only one angel speaks. So let's hear what the speaking angel has to say in verse 6. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him. The angel first sees their fear, their amazement, so he tells them not to be afraid. He basically says, stop being amazed. He's not telling them the resurrection shouldn't amaze them. He's telling them his presence need not terrify them. The angel knows exactly who these women are and why they have come. He says, you are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He's got the right information. They've got the right information. Maybe you've heard in the past, some people say, oh, these women, they, they showed up at the wrong tomb. And this really spoils that whole theory. Not only did they watch Jesus be placed in that tomb, so they knew the tomb, but here the angel confirms it. You're looking for Jesus. You've got the right tomb. This is his tomb. Only he's not here. Where is he? The angel says he has risen. He is not here. At times, Mark gives the most detail in his stories, but other times, most times, Mark is a man of few words. You might recall how he recorded the event of the crucifixion itself with just a few words. Mark 15, 24, he says, and they crucified him. That's it. No mention of the nails or the cross beam or anything, just very short. And likewise, with the resurrection, this is it. There's no account of how Jesus actually rose from the dead, when exactly it happened, what Jesus did right away. This doesn't mention that. We have merely the announcement of the angel. He has risen. He is not here. But this is enough. This is enough. This is all the divine confirmation we need and the women needed. They saw the empty tomb. 
But in a sense, the empty tomb for them was not enough because like Mary, they would have fled and thought someone had stolen the body. Rather, God sent his divine messenger, this angel, to the women to fill in the gap and let them know what had happened, to open their eyes to the truth. The tomb was empty because Jesus had risen. And that makes all the difference in the world. The angel goes on to say, Behold, here's the place where they laid him, pointing to the shelf or the bench where the body of Jesus was placed. Looking inside, they would have seen nothing except, like John and Peter, the linen wrappings left behind perfectly in place. The body of Jesus, though, gone. He was no longer there. He had risen, and the time had come to get the word out. So verse 7 says, the angel says, But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. This angel is not just informing these women, but also commissioning them. Those who have the privilege of being visited by an angel, they're not just given a message, they're always given a mission as well. The women had the privilege of being the first to hear the news of the resurrection. This came the privilege of being its first witnesses, its first messengers. Specifically, they were instructed to go tell the other 11 disciples. The commission to tell everybody that would come later. But for now, God was concerned that the chief disciples were brought back into the fold and made aware of the resurrection. And here you see God's mercy on display because all the disciples had had fallen hard that Passover weekend. They denied the Lord. They ran away. They went into hiding. But God knows their weakness and he's merciful and he seeks now through this message to restore them. This also explains the special note to Peter. Peter singled out, not because he's special or, or better, just the opposite. He fell the hardest that weekend, vehemently and publicly denying the Lord three times. But the Lord still wanted Peter to know that through the resurrected Christ, there's forgiveness, there's new life. And Christ's resurrection would mean newness of life for all of them. You see the Lord's grace on display here. Now, I mentioned earlier there would be a greater commission, and that's what's behind this reference to Galilee in verse 7. Right before his death, Jesus told his disciples this, Mark 14, 27, 28. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But then he said, But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. It was foreseen that the sheep, the disciples, would scatter when Christ, the good shepherd, was struck down. But as he rises, so he regathers his sheep. And that's what he's doing with the eleven here. And that regathering formally will take place in Galilee, where it all began for them. That's where Jesus called them, all of them, except Judas Iscariot. And he's, out, he's gone. Uh, he's out of the picture at this point. So there he will regather his disciples and he will recommission them to be real fishers of men. The disciples, though, they they were out of their game right now. They had failed to pay attention to the predictions of Christ's resurrection and they surely had failed to pay attention to the prediction to go to Galilee. So they were still in Jerusalem. The angel, therefore, tells the women to remind the men of what Christ had told them before. Just like Jesus said, 
Like a good shepherd, he will go ahead of them to Galilee, and there he will gather them up and commission them. Now, this is not to suggest that the disciples would see the Lord for the first time in Galilee. That's not the case. Galilee was not to be his first appearance. It was to be his greatest appearance, his supreme appearance. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to more than 500 believers at one time. And that undoubtedly took place in Galilee, where the vast majority of his disciples resided. This is when Jesus gave the Great Commission to all of his disciples. But for the eleven, they would actually see Jesus later that night. Jesus first appeared to Mary Magdalene. Later, she came back to the tomb, and his first appearance was to her. Then he appeared to these other women, our women in our text, the other Mary and Salome. These other women then, they all went back and they testified to the eleven, we've seen the risen Lord, but they did not believe them. Only later that night, when the ten were gathered in the upper room, Jesus appeared to them and they believed. Later, he showed up with Thomas present as well. There were, in fact, many more appearances of the risen Lord to his disciples in and around Jerusalem, and then later in and around Galilee, and a final appearance before the ascension. It's not our intention to study all those appearances now, but simply to note that the testimony to his resurrection was wide-ranging, many different places, many different times. And many people could testify that they saw Jesus was killed, buried, but then risen. For now, though, we want to return our attention back to this group of women. At this point in the text, they have not seen the risen Lord. They've only seen the angel. He has instructed them. He has commissioned them. And so now, off they go. Verse 8, the last verse. It says, They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, we're actually saving most of this verse for a later sermon, but in brief, it says they fled in trembling and astonishment. Their bodies were still shaking from their run-in with this angel and the surprise. They were awestruck. Matthew includes they they had great joy. I mean, they were happy, but they were just shell-shocked. But then a most unusual statement occurs. It says, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Seems rather unexpected and anticlimactic. Of course, it doesn't mean they didn't go and tell the disciples because they did. That's where they went straight away. What this means is that they went straight away. As they went from the tomb to the upper room where the disciples were, they would have passed by countless people. Remember, this was Passover weekend, so there were hundreds of thousands of extra people in town. But instead of telling every person they met, they ran past everybody. They said nothing to anyone until they reached the disciples. They were so gripped with fear and amazement, they couldn't speak until they found the other disciples. Now, there's much more to say about this final verse in Mark, but that we are saving for a future sermon. For now, though, this suffices as Mark's account of the resurrection. This is his historical record of the gospel, the good news, with, you know, we've added in a little detail from Matthew and Luke and John as well. But this is a good thing to study. It is good for you to study the resurrection. You need to study 
the resurrection. It is good to know what the Bible says about Christ's resurrection. It's good, but it's not good enough. It's not enough simply to know about Christ's resurrection. But rather, you must also believe. Like I said, we're, we're not done with this text. There's so much more to study when it comes to the resurrection. We'll do so in the weeks to come. But for today, just from the plain account of the resurrection, a lesson emerges, a simple lesson, namely that it's good to know, but it's not enough. It's not enough simply to know that he raised. You must believe that he was raised. In the Gospels, including Mark, you are meant to be amazed by the fact that all the disciples, male and female, they were surprised when Jesus rose from the dead. They all knew better. All of them knew that he was supposed to rise. But then when it happens, they're totally caught off guard and totally surprised. They had zero expectation of the resurrection. To be sure, Jesus told them several times what was going to happen. Hey guys, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over and mocked and crucified and killed and buried. But then on the third day, I'll rise again. He told them that several times. But this never registered with them. It was just too unbelievable. So when Jesus dies, the disciples, they lose hope. They go into hiding because they think he's going to stay dead. The women, they're showing up at the tomb to anoint him because they think he's going to stay there forever. And Mary, when she sees the empty tomb, what does she think? Not resurrection. She thinks they must have stolen his body. Her first thought, someone stole his body. They all knew better. They simply did not believe. What's ironic here is that the enemies of Jesus, the religious leaders, they actually did remember how Jesus said on the third day he would rise again. That's why they set the guard in front of the tomb, because they actually remembered what he said, whereas the disciples all forgot what he said. Nonetheless, they too knew better, but they didn't believe. No one was believing. Now you might say, aren't the disciples off the hook here because wasn't uh, kind of like a divine blindfold over their eyes? And that might be true to a degree, but in Scripture that never lessens human responsibility. Fact is, they should have known better. They should have known better. They did know better, but they were guilty of unbelief. Their faith was real in the Lord, but it was weak. It was little. It was riddled with confusion and doubt. The silver lining here, the good news is thankfully the Lord has proven in the gospel that he accepts those with a little faith. But he calls you not merely to know, but to believe. And not merely to believe, but to believe in his resurrection with all your heart. To really believe. Is that not what Romans 10.9 says? That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In weeks to come, we'll study much more about the reality of the resurrection and why it matters so much. But already you should be able to tell it sits at the very heart of the Christian faith. If Jesus did not rise, it spells the end of all hope. You are left to sit in disillusionment with the disciples. You are left to grieve with the women. You can try and enjoy this life, eat, drink, and be merry, but death is still coming for you. 
And if death won over Jesus, what makes you think it won't win over you? If Jesus did not rise, what makes you think you will rise to new, everlasting life with God? But Jesus did rise, and by confessing him, and trusting in him, and believing in him, his death and resurrection, you can find this eternal hope and his eternal life given to you. God has promised this life to all who believe the unbelievable. So I urge you to turn to Christ today. You won't find him in his tomb. He's not there. He's risen. You can only find him by faith. So turn to him by faith. Believe in his resurrection with all your hearts and be saved today. Let's pray. Oh, great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the resurrection and we believe, we confess our belief. And for any here, Lord, we pray with them, Lord, help our unbelief for those who might struggle with confusion or fear or doubt, strengthen their faith, solidify their faith, convict their hearts that Jesus has risen from the dead. And in that faith, they can be saved and we all can be edified. Lord, this is our hope. This is the ultimate hope. Our ultimate problem is is death. Sin brings death. Death is our real problem, though. Death in this life and death in the next, an eternal death. And our only hope to that death is life, which we don't have. But you have it to give it. You offer it. But to those who believe in, first, the life of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. In this, we can know and access new life here and new life hereafter, Lord. Thank you for this hope. We, we cherish it. And may we live in, under the hope of resurrection that this night, life is not our home, this life is not our last either. We too will rise to new life with Christ. He went there first, leading the way in the day when that comes. Through our faith, by your grace, we too will rise to new everlasting life and hope. So we thank you. May we live in that hope now boldly, confessing you, no longer afraid, no longer hiding, but proclaiming your name to all those around us, that they, they too might have the same hope before the time comes. Lift up all these things to you in praise. We delight in the account of this resurrection, Lord. It is our life, and so to you we give you praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.